Well, good morning, and again, welcome to Evanston Bible Fellowship on this last Sunday of 2012. We're glad you're here. If you have been around Evanston Bible Fellowship for a while, you know that one of the ways we describe ourselves is as a teaching hospital. Just as uh, a teaching hospital allows young professionals to practice their care for the body, we want to help young people grow in their ability to care for the soul. And this is one of those teaching hospital Sundays. Uh, This morning, Jeremy Childs is going to be bringing us uh, the Word of God. Jeremy uh, has been attending our church for two and a half years with his wife, Elizabeth. Many of you know him. He is in his final year at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And currently, he is serving as a pastoral intern for college ministry and uh, adult education. We are glad that he is here. And I can say personally that I have seen, uh, I've seen Jeremy in, in many uh, places and in many ways, and I'm just so grateful for his, for his spirit. He has a very humble spirit. He has a keen mind, and, and above all, he has a pastor's heart. So I'm excited to hear Jeremy as he brings us the word. So Jeremy, come on up and preach God's word to us. If you would like to borrow a Bible this morning, please raise your hand, and our ushers will bring you a Bible, and when you're done using it, you can just leave it in the pew when you're finished with it. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 4 today, Proverbs chapter 4. I have one question that I want to ask at the beginning of the sermon, one question that I want to use to frame our time today in the Word. One question that we'll ask, and then at the end we'll come back around to and see if we can answer. And that question is this. If wisdom is so valuable, then why is it so hard to sell? That is, if wisdom is everything that people say that it is, then why do wise people have to go to such great lengths to get you and me to buy into it? What I mean by that is not that we don't recognize the value of wisdom, We recognize the value of money, and if people tell us that money is valuable, we go after it. But we know also that wisdom is valuable, and people tell us to go after wisdom, and we don't. And they need to tell us again to go after wisdom, and repeatedly and repeatedly we're told to go after wisdom. What is it about wisdom that just makes it so unappealing? In Proverbs chapter 4, in these 27 verses this morning, I counted more than a dozen commands to listen or appeals to hear wisdom. And for me, it just begs the question, what is it about wisdom that's so unappealing? I think we see this in the text that we're going to look at today. I think we see this played out in life as well. Now, I'm not a parent, but I've been a son for a long time, and I know firsthand how unappealing wisdom can seem and how appealing foolishness can seem at some times. Many of you are fathers and mothers, and I know that you've just reached exasperation on numerous occasions, asking yourself, why won't my son listen to what I have to say? Why does my daughter ignore the words of wisdom that I have for her? But it doesn't just stop with children. All of us have friends who make what seem like the most incredible decisions. We all know people who seem just intent on making impossibly bad decisions in life who, despite the advice that we offer to them, continue to fall in with the wrong crowd or with the wrong guy or with the wrong girl. And they refuse to listen to wisdom. 
choosing instead to spurn it, even though it hurts them. Sometimes it hits a little closer to home. Maybe it's not your friend that we're talking about. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's me. Convinced that we are smarter than everybody else, or believing the lie that we won't suffer the way that other people have suffered. We spurn wisdom and we pursue relationships we have no business pursuing. Or maybe we enter into business or work relationships that can have devastating consequences for our character or for our finances. Or we allow folly itself in the form of television to show us and to teach us what dating and marriage relationships should look like. Which brings us back to the question, if wisdom is so precious and if wisdom is so valuable, then why is it such a hard sell? So this is the question that we're going to try to grapple with today as we look at Proverbs chapter 4. Now, Proverbs 4 doesn't answer this question directly. What we're going to see in Proverbs 4 are three pictures, three pictures of what it looks like to pursue wisdom. What we have are three appeals to get wisdom, and then each appeal is followed by a benefit that having wisdom gives, or a picture of what having wisdom looks like. Or maybe better, three things that characterize the life of a person who decides to become wise. And three is not an arbitrary number. Proverbs chapter 4 breaks down into three sections or three stanzas because this is a poem. So we have three stanzas, and I want to show you that before we dive in. Each of these stanzas begins with an address by the speaker to his sons, like we have in 4.1, or to his son in the singular in 4.10 and in 4.20. Each of these stanzas starts out in a formulaic way. What we have is an appeal to hear or to be attentive or to listen, to accept my words, something similar. And we have each of those in 4.1, 4.10, and 4.20. And then each of these appeals is followed by a reason, a that, a listen so that. In 4.1, the Father's appeal to listen is so that you may gain insight. In 4.10, the Father's appeal for his son to listen is so that the years of your life may be many. Then in 420, the father's appeal to be attentive is extended. It's longer than the other two. He says, don't just be attentive. Incline your ear. Crane your neck, as it were, in order to keep my words in view and put them into your heart. Hold on to them. For, in verse 22, they are life. He says, in effect, my words are life, and so I appeal to you not to let them escape So in each of these three stanzas, we will see characteristics or pictures of a person who has decided to get wise, so to speak. So here's what we'll do. We'll take each of these stanzas one at a time and go through and pick out the picture that it's giving us of a wise person. So we'll start in stanza one, which is Proverbs 4, verses 1 through 9. Proverbs 4, 1 through 9. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live, get wisdom, get insight, do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you, love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. 
She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. So let's pause here and make a few observations about what's going on. First, you can see right in verse 1, this is instruction from a father to a son. And I don't think it's limited to a father or to a son. I think we see in verse 3 that something bigger is in view. This is instruction that comes from parents, from mothers and fathers, to children. Second, this father was also a son at one time. Part of the instruction that he offers is what he, as a son, received from his father. And we see this right in verse 3, verses 3 and 4. So there's this intergenerational teaching that's happening here. And then the next section, beginning in verse 4 and going through verse 9, is actually a quotation from the grandfather, which if you pause to think about it, is kind of cool. Right here in Proverbs 4, we probably have King David's very words. One last observation before we move forward. Just in these few verses, we've encountered several words for wisdom. We have instruction and insight in verse 1, precepts and teaching in verse 2. And as we move through the rest of the chapter, we're going to encounter several more. I believe that these are all generally referring to wisdom. And if we pause just for a moment, Pastor Jason has taught us, um, told us numerous times, what is in view when we talk about wisdom. Wisdom is that God-given competence that comes from God. He gives it to us so that we can navigate the details of life, not only for our own good, but ultimately for the glory of God. So wisdom is that God-given competence to navigate the details of life for the glory of God. So beginning in verse 4, we have the quotation from Grandpa, uh, which continues through verse 9. And I love the way that this is set up poetically. If you look, right at the end of verse 4, there are two positive commands. He says, hold fast and keep And then at the end of verse 5, there are two negative commands. He says, don't forget and don't turn away. And then right in the middle, in between both of these, we have two very staccato imperatives. He says, get wisdom, get insight. And so I really think verse 5 is the climax of Grandpa's teaching. It's the the center of our first stanza here. And then beginning in verse 6, wisdom is turned from being the object of apprehension, that which we go after, and it becomes a subject who is keeping us safe. So wisdom is the she that it talks about here. In verses 8 and 9, the image turns again, and we have a picture of wisdom spoken of almost as a wife. She used to be loved in verse 6, and she used to be prized and embraced in verse 8. Again, in verses 6 and following, I love the way that this poem is structured. In verses 6 and 8, we have something that stands parallel with each other. We have... This is what you, my son, this is what you will do. And then this is what she, wisdom, will do. And it goes back and forth. And then in verses 7 and 9, these stand parallel also. Almost as the opposite of each other. In verse 7, this is what you, my son, my child, will do. And then in verse 9, this is what wisdom will do for you. And so wisdom has benefits beyond merely getting wisdom. The benefit of wisdom is not merely having wisdom. Wisdom works for you. Wisdom brings great benefit. Okay, so what do we do with this first stanza? There's one big idea that I want you to take away from this first stanza, and Solomon was kind enough to us to put it right in the middle of the stanza and then to repeat it for us so that we wouldn't miss it. 
And you can see it right in verse 5. He says, get wisdom, get insight. And then he repeats it in verse 7. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And so if we put this together, at the heart of the father's instruction is this quotation from grandpa, right? The father says, this is how you can get wisdom. And then he quotes grandpa, and grandpa says, get wisdom. So if we put those together, we put it like this. Do you want to get wisdom? Then get wisdom, <laughs> right? Do you want to get insight? Then get insight. It's pretty clear, right? Thanks for playing. We can go home. What is he talking about here? This is what I think is going on. First, getting wisdom means deciding. It's volitional. It's intentional. We have to get wisdom. We have to decide to get wisdom. Getting wisdom is at least, at very least, the humble recognition that wisdom lies outside of ourselves and that it is something which we need to go and to find and to get and to apprehend and to make a part of our lives. So getting wise is first deciding to get wise. It's volitional. Paul Tripp, in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, which I know many of you are familiar with, makes the point that even in the Garden of Eden, even when things were going good with Adam and with Eve and with Adam and with God, even in that perfect setting, God so designed things so that Adam and Eve were dependent upon God to know how to live. Wisdom was outside of themselves, and they needed to go and get it. And God said, eat from these trees and don't eat from this tree. God said, be fruitful and multiply. And all of these directives on how to live came from outside of themselves. The fact that wisdom lies outside of ourselves is not a condition of the fall. It's a condition of being human. And it's only in our pride that we reject this and assume that we don't need to look outside of ourselves for wisdom on how life works. So getting wise is first an act of humility. It's looking outside of ourselves for wisdom. Second, I think we need to change the way that we think about getting wisdom. We don't get wisdom like we get a cell phone or like we get a car. You can go to the Verizon store and you can purchase a cell phone and then you'll have a cell phone. And then even if tomorrow Apple comes out with a new iPhone, you don't need to go and get it, even if maybe you feel like you need to go and get it. Because once you have a cell phone, you have a phone. And that's not a need anymore, if you even want to talk about a cell phone as a need. Wisdom is not like getting a cell phone. Wisdom is much more like getting water. We get wisdom like we get water. When we find water, we find its source. And we return to the source daily, and maybe multiple times a day, because we never stop needing water. The need is continual. It's not a one-and-done type of deal. And so, getting wisdom means finding the source. Becomes, it means becoming intimately familiar with where we can find wisdom. So where can we find wisdom? What are the sources of wisdom? I think in these first nine verses, we have three locations, three places that we can find wisdom. First, wisdom can be found in the instruction and in the teaching of our parents. And you can see this right in all the pronouns that are used. This instruction from the Father is my instruction. It's my teaching. It comes from our fathers and from our mothers. And just briefly, 
I know there's a few children in here, and I want to talk just directly to you. Your mom and your dad is a source of wisdom to you. They know better than you how life works, and they can teach you about it. Listening to your mom and to your dad is an important part of getting wisdom. So the first source of wisdom comes from our parents. Second, I think we find wisdom in tradition that has been handed down to us. And this, I think, is a basic extrapolation from the previous point. And it goes like this. If wisdom comes from our parents and from our grandparents, and if our parents get their wisdom from their parents and from their grandparents, this kind of goes back down the line. Wisdom is, in a sense, handed down from parent to parent to parent. And this is what I have in mind when I speak of tradition. I once heard Thomas Sowell make the comment, there's nothing older than the idea that this is new. And tradition, this connectedness to our past, is a way of safeguarding ourselves from what can sometimes be false and dangerous novelties. Nothing more than old air parading around is new idea. When we are connected to our past, our vision is extended beyond the short-sightedness of the present, and we are able to avoid these pitfalls. And some of you might right now be rolling your eyes, even if you're polite enough not to do it. Externally, you're rolling your eyes internally. The idea to you that your dad or that your mom could be a source of wisdom, maybe you find that hilarious. Or maybe you find that infuriating. Because the truth is, maybe for some of us, our dad or our mom was not a source of wisdom. Maybe they really blew it. But I think even in these circumstances, we can see the grace of God. Because he has not left us without spiritual parents. If you are here at EBF, you are not without spiritual parents. If this idea of spiritual parentage is unfamiliar with you, you can see it right in the New Testament. Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, he refers to Timothy as his child multiple times. And I think that has the idea of spiritual parentage. Spiritual parents are those who would invest in you and show you with their lives how to walk humbly with God and would show you with their lives how to stay married to your spouse, show you with their lives how to avoid the pitfalls of this or idolatrous culture, show you how to relate to their job and how to relate to their income so that it's clear, that it's evident that that is not their treasure, that the high king of heaven, Jesus himself, is their treasure. There are men and women here at EBF who would teach you, both with their lives and with their words. Elizabeth and I just celebrated four years of marriage this past week. And, and she made me say this, but I would have said it anyways. And I love her. I love her very much. But as many of you who are married know, it's not easy to be married sometimes. Marriage is hard. And it's not primarily because of her. It's primarily because of me, because I'm sinful and I'm selfish in ways that I'm just beginning to realize. And it's not just us. There are landmines in our culture. There are pitfalls in our world that, if they had their way, would destroy our marriage and would destroy your marriage. And that's why Elizabeth and I are both so grateful for people who are older than us, for people who have been married longer than we have, who can walk beside us, and help us to stay married, who are willing to open up their lives 
and show us this is how you stay married. There are men and women here at EBF who can speak wisdom into your life who are willing to do that. And all it takes from you is a willingness to pursue that opportunity. The third source of wisdom that we see right in this passage is the words of God himself. I think we can see this in verse 4. It might take a little bit of work. In verse 4, wisdom is talked about as a source of life. He says in verse 4, keep my commandments and live. Now, the way he talks about wisdom here is very similar to the way in Deuteronomy it talks about the words of God. And it's all over Deuteronomy. But just for example, in Deuteronomy 8, it says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live. So in Deuteronomy, hearing the words of God is a source of life to those who not only hear it, but retain it and live it. And likewise, here in Proverbs 4, hearing and keeping the instruction of the Father brings life. It's a source of life to those who hear it and retain it and keep it. One way to put these two together is like this. The instruction of wise, godly people is so saturated in the words of God and in the wisdom of God, which is found in his words, which is to say, wisdom can be found in the very words of God. So this is our first stanza. We've seen that wisdom first is outside of ourselves. Second, that wisdom can be found in godly people. And third, that wisdom can be found in God's words. Let's move on to stanza two, beginning in verse 10. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it and do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. In 4.1, in our first stanza, the call was to hear so that you would gain insight. Here, in 4.10, the call is so that the years of your life may be many. And I think at the outset, it's important to note that he's not talking generally about living some abnormally long life, as if following his advice will help you see at the age of 103. Long life is just one way to talk about a blessed life. This has more to do with the character or the quality of your life than the quantity of life. And I think in this way it echoes the fifth commandment in Exodus 20, 12. Honor your father and your mother that the days of your life, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So here in our second stanza, wisdom will be considered as it pertains to the quality of your life. Now this language that we have here in verses 11, 14 of paths and of ways is a typical way to talk about your, manic, your manner of life or your character of life. This is your lifestyle. And Jesus uses a similar illustration when he talks about the narrow gate and the broad gate, contrasting the way of life or the way to life and the way to destruction in Matthew 7. 
here in Proverbs 4, the father is telling his son that he has taught him a character of life that corresponds to the morally upright. This is the path that will not cause you to stumble. It's free from obstruction. And notice, too, that wisdom is moral. It's not a morally neutral category. The way of wisdom is the path of uprightness or righteousness. In a later verse, the way of wisdom is contrasted by the way of evil people. And so wisdom is moral. The teaching of the Father, as we move down in verses 11 through 13, is contrasted in verses 14 through 17 with a picture of what it looks like to forsake or to turn away or to neglect the teaching of the Father. And it's not a pretty picture. He says in verse 16 that the wicked cannot sleep unless they have done wrong, and they are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. He goes on to say that violence and wickedness are sources of life to them, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence, and they cannot live without the wicked things that they do. He finishes this with a final contrast between the righteous and the evil using the imagery of daybreak or sunrise. And he contrasts that with the dead of night or what he calls deep darkness. And I think in some ways the invention of the light bulb has made it difficult for us to fully enter into this metaphor, to understand what it really means to be in deep darkness. I mean, it's difficult to find places in this city where there's deep darkness, even at night. But just imagine walking around your house at night in deep darkness, no lights on, hands out in front of you trying to find the couch so that your toes don't. That's in the safety of your own home. Imagine trying to travel outside at night in deep darkness on a moonless night, cloudy, overcast. There are cliffs that can be fallen off of. There are evil people who want to hurt you. And it's not a safe way to travel. The safe travel is to be had during the daytime when it's light and when it's bright and when obstacles are illumined. There's a progression here that I want you to see. The Father's instruction puts us on the righteous path where we can run without stumbling in verse 12. And this is contrasted with the wicked people who can't sleep unless they cause somebody else to stumble in verse 16. But in the end, in a twist, it's the wicked themselves who stumble and they don't even know what they stumble over. Now, to many of us, maybe this doesn't seem like a real danger. Maybe none of you are considering running out and pledging with a gang, if that's how you join gangs. But here, in the book of Proverbs in general, and in Proverbs 4 in particular, what it gives us is two pictures. We have a, a white picture, and we have a black picture, and there's no gray picture. It gives us a picture of uprightness and godliness, in a picture of wickedness and of evil. And there's no picture of moral ambiguity. There's no picture of people who are kind of good, but sometimes they make bad decisions. It's an all-or-nothing picture. And this is helpful to us in some ways. Because we are comfortable living in moral grayness. Even though we would confess with our mouths that those who follow Christ should live as Christ has commanded us to live, we would confess that. We can often be comfortable living in something that resembles moral, moral grayness. We are comfortable with what I like to call the yeah buts. We say things like, yeah, I shouldn't have said that, but I was tired. Or, yeah, I shouldn't have looked at that 
but it was just a moment of weakness. Or, yeah, I shouldn't have treated them like that, but they really deserved it. What Proverbs does for us is it strips away this moral grayness, and it forces us to consider our lives along a trajectory. It forces us to ask, what is the trajectory of our life? What is it that marks our life? So what trajectory are you on? Here in Proverbs 4 also, we're forced not just to consider our own lives, but to consider the lives of those we associate with, those we spend time around. Our friends and our acquaintances are those whom we allow to speak into our lives. What is the character of their life? Again, we are given two pictures. Those who walk on the upright path, they pursue wisdom, and those whose path is crooked and who themselves are evil. This black and white picture, it's not just a Proverbs thing. We see it in the New Testament as well. Paul does this in several places. We could go to a number of places. But just for example, in Ephesians 5, he writes, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, which is really nothing more than idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So this is not just the Proverbs or an Old Testament thing. And maybe we would say, yeah, but it's sin, and you have to consider sin in light of the cross. Sin is transformed in light of the cross, isn't it? And no, actually it's not. Repentant sinners, repentant sinners are transformed in light of the cross. People who despair of their own efforts to save themselves and cling to Christ are transformed in light of the cross, in light of Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross. But sin is still sin in light of the cross. So here in the second stanza, what we see is that wisdom is marked by a character of life that is righteous and pursues after God. And the call in this stanza is to consider our own lives and to consider the lives of those that we allow to speak into our life, our close friends. Let's move on to stanza three. Last stanza, beginning in verse 20. Now, as we read this stanza, I want you to watch for the way that it builds into the center. We start with an appeal in verse 20, like we've seen in the other two stanzas, and then immediately we have images of the body. There's images of the body taking in wisdom. And then at the end of the stanza, we have images of the body living out wisdom. And then right in the middle, conceptually, of the stanza, we have the main point of the stanza. We have that part of the body which processes input and directs output. This is the part of the body that processes what we take in and directs what we do, our output. And that's what I want you to watch for. So beginning in verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. As we mentioned, this is the longest appeal of the three so far. In verse 20, we have something 
standard, like we've seen in the other stanzas. He says, be attentive, incline your ear, and listen. But it continues to build. In verse 21, he's almost desperate with his plea to listen. He says, don't let them, that's my words, don't let my words escape. Keep them within your heart. For, verse 22, they are life to those who find them. We haven't talked much about the heart, although it has shown up in verse 4. He says, let your heart hold fast my words. Now, when we think of the heart, when we think of the heart, we often associate it with our emotions. Our heart pertains to how we feel about different things, about this or that. For us, the heart is very much the emotional center of our person, of our life. And so movies can be heartwarming, and greetings can be heartfelt, and so on. And this is a way to talk about our emotions, the way we feel about things. In the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, when they speak of the heart, they mean something a little bit different. The heart in the Bible is the seat of the will. It's the center of the person. It's that place from which we make decisions. One illustration that I think is helpful, it's not mine, one way to think about this. If here in the West we think with our minds and we feel with our hearts, I think it's mostly true to say that in the Old Testament, everything shifts down about a foot. And so they think and process with their hearts and they feel with their bowels. And we don't see that much in our modern translations, but if you go to the King James Version, you'll see things like the bowels of compassion, which has to do with how people feel about things. You can say things to your wife like, honey, you make my bowels quiver, (laughs) which is... Still a Hallmark card I'm looking for. (laughs) Wouldn't that get the job done? All this to say that what the author is getting at here includes what you put into your head. It doesn't matter primarily what you feel about his teaching. It matters more what you think about his teaching. Or to go even further, what you keep thinking about his teaching. And so the place that we are to put this wisdom this instruction, this insight, etc., is in our hearts. We are to capture it and to think about it so that it affects our will. We put it in our hearts so that it affects our will. And that sounds a lot like memorization. Verse 23 is the climax of this stanza. We're going to spend a little more time here and then finish with the poem. If... As I just argued, we should be thinking about the heart as including our process of thinking and reasoning. It's not without feeling, but it includes the process of thinking and reasoning. Then I think this verse makes a little more sense. It isn't talking about guarding your emotional health, although do do that. What is in view here is the process of practicing discretion over what you consume. This is the process of practicing discretion over what you consume. You take things in with your eyes. What are you looking at? You take things in with your ears. What are you listening to? The easy application here would be to jump to visual media, which we are absolutely inundated with today, to sound off on movies or TV or video games or the Internet. It would be easy to stand up here especially in sound off against the internet. One study that was done this year estimates that people spend on average, on average, eight hours a month on Facebook. 
eight hours a month on Facebook. A study done a few years ago suggests that people, on average, spend 13 hours a week on the Internet. On average, people spend 13 hours a week on the Internet. And that's, that's old, old data. The Internet owns some of you. I know it does. And it's an evil master. You probably need to reach out and get some help. But here, the image isn't only one of deprivation. It's not only one of keeping things out of our heart. The object is wisdom. And the image is much more one of tending, like a person would tend a garden. Think about this. Evanston, the city of Evanston, has two Whole Foods grocery stores. And I can't think of another city of comparable size that supports two Whole Foods grocery stores. And I think that's because people who live in Evanston care a great deal about what they put into their body. They recognize that what they put into their body affects them. How tragic is it that we would be so concerned for what we put into our bodies, and yet we continually feed our hearts McDonald's. But keeping your heart isn't primarily depriving, depriving it of things that would harm it, although it is that. But if that's all you do, then you still haven't tended your garden you need to give it good things. You need to nourish it. Tending the garden of your heart or of your mind means guarding against junk, yes, but it also means putting things into your mind that will nourish it. And this is similar to what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so we need to be discriminating about what we put into our hearts. We need to practice discretion over what we consume. And here's why. Here's what I think we all know is true. But few of us live like we actually believe. When you change inside, you are able to change outside. When you change inside, what you do, your behavior, is able to change. I think we can go further. When you change inside, you have to change outside because what comes out is only indicative of what is in there. We can see this right in the rest of our stanza, right in the rest of our poem. It gives us all these images of the body. When you tend the garden of your heart, for example, your speech will change. Right in verse 24, crooked speech. Now, this doesn't mean that you have a speech impediment. I think you can still be wise and have a speech impediment. But if true, if what is true is straight, then what is devious is crooked. It is misleading. It looks like it's going in one direction. But then it turns and it goes somewhere else. And so when you start to change inside, you need to stop lying. You need to stop telling half lies and half truths that you know people understand in a way that isn't true. And these are the sorts of things that begin to change as we inculcate, as we ingest godly wisdom and are changed by it. And we just sang about this. Speak, O Lord. And I won't read the whole thing. The first verse, take your truth and plant it deep in us. Shape us and fashion us in your likeness. How did you think you were going to change? Were you going to try harder? That's not going to work. That's not going to work. We change as we encounter God himself in his word. So just to summarize, we've looked at these three stanzas. In the first stanza, we saw that wisdom comes from outside of ourselves and it can be found in godly people and in God's own words. 
In the second stanza, we saw that wisdom calls us to evaluate not only our lives, consider the trajectory of our own lives, but also those who influence us. And then here in the third stanza, wisdom calls us to carefully discriminate what we put into our hearts and then to live appropriately. So, in conclusion, if we return to the question that we asked at the beginning, why is it that wisdom is so unappealing? Why is it that we so easily reject wisdom? I have two answers to this question and then two suggestions for us. There's probably multiple answers, but there's two that I want to talk about today. And the first is this. We are a proud and an arrogant people. And we don't want to admit that we don't know. Getting wisdom is more than knowing stuff, because we know stuff, and we know stuff about stuff, and we've got degrees to prove that we know stuff. And we can split atoms, and we can... Talk about verbal aspect and deictic markers. This pride thing, this knowledge thing, it affects us seminarians too. And we know stuff about stuff. And we've got the degrees to prove it. But the issue here is deeper. Like we saw in the first stanza, it takes humility to acknowledge that godly wisdom lies outside of ourselves. And we need humbly to seek it. So the first step in getting wisdom is humility, is seeking wisdom. Second, it takes work to seek wisdom. It takes work to go outside of ourselves and to get wisdom. And I think that we would rather coast. We would rather update our Facebook profile than to stop and consider the words of God. Moreover, seeking wisdom is not passive. It's active. It's volitional. It's a decision to go for it to go after, and it takes diligence. And you need to hear this. There is grace. I hope you don't hear, try harder, try harder. There is grace. There's grace for when we fail, but the grace doesn't get us off the hook. We still need to go for it. We still need to pursue wisdom. So first it takes humility, and second it takes work. And I think that's why we so often reject it. So here are my two suggestions for us. And the first is memorize. Memorize verses and memorize paragraphs and memorize chapters of the Bible. It's doable. You can do it. Put God's word into your heart. Next week when we meet again, Pastor Jason is going to recite two chapters from Romans. You can do that. You can do that. You can memorize. This is not just something for pastors or seminarians or professional Christians. You can memorize God's word. You can put it into your heart. And it will start to change you as you encounter it in your heart. So memorize. And the second is this. Read the Bible. As I noted earlier, if we are in any way average in this room, we spend somewhere in the neighborhood of 111 minutes a day on the Internet, almost two hours a day on the Internet. That's almost two hours where the culture of this world is teaching you and me, in training you and me how to think about life. Think about this. If you are an average reader, an average reader can read 200 words per minute. If you're an average reader, you can read the entire Bible in a year by spending just about 10 minutes a day reading. 
I think we need to be honest with ourselves. It's not a time issue. It's not a time issue. It's a decision. We just don't want to make the effort. And I think that's why what's probably more important than picking a reading plan is finding a reading partner. Find somebody who will read with you, who will hold you accountable, who will encourage you when you don't feel like reading, when you feel like coasting. Somebody who you can discuss issues with when they come up in the text. Those are just two suggestions. Memorize and read God's Word. Now, we are on the brink of the new year in just a few days here. I don't think that there's anything magical about New Year's Eve or about New Year's Day, but it is a really helpful threshold. We can feel it when we take down that calendar and put up the new one. We can feel the passage of time. So I pray that this year, that you and I, by God's grace, that we would lay aside, as it says in Hebrews, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. And may we, by God's grace, truly go for it this year. May we go all out in our pursuit of God's wisdom this year. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word that you've given us and the access that we have to it. And God, we confess that we are prideful people. It is difficult to look outside of ourselves and to look to you. And so we pray for your grace, uh, that you would make us humble. And we pray for your strength, that we would pursue you and that we would lay hold of you in your word. We would encounter you in your word. And I pray that as we do that, by your spirit, you would change us this year. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.